0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Asian Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Park, and the following is a conversation with Konstantin Kissin. Konstantin is a Russia-British author, comedian, and a social commentator who recently went viral for his speech at Oxford University. The cultural gap between Asia and the West is vast, and while we try our best to bring you the most authentic insights and perspectives from Asia. The reality is that most people living in Asia are completely in the dark about the latest cultural shifts taking place in the West, other than, of course, what they hear from the Western mainstream media. Whether it be about the Russian invasion of Ukraine or fighting the so-called woke culture in the UK and the US, Konstantin has you covered with his brilliant yet super straightforward takes. So how does one go from living in the former Soviet
1: Union to giving a viral speech at Oxford? Let's find out.
0: Hey Konstantin, how you doing?
1: Hey man, it's it's a pleasure to be with you I'm so impressed with everything you've built over there at Asian Boss. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you so much for coming
0: on I know you're a very famous man these days starting with that viral Oxford uh, university speech that has millions of views. What does it feel like to be sort of the man of the moment?
1: You should be honest with your audience and and, be, and say that you're massively exaggerating because I think the reason you see me a lot is you're probably on the internet a lot, uh, but I, <laughs> I walk around here I, in the UK. Generally, most people thankfully don't know who I am. So uh, you, you're right. My, my Oxford speech uh, about woke culture and climate change, it probably did about somewhere between 100 and 200 million views um, Man, which, which is yeah. a lot. It is incredible that that many people wanted to watch it um, but you know it's interesting because we live in a world now I think you're not, you're not really going to have that many like global celebrities or superstars anymore because everyone is like in their niche and so you can be very famous within a certain sliver of, of, of society. Uh, and be completely unknown in the rest of it, which is my dream. I, I never wanted to be famous. I don't want that for my family. I don't want that for myself. I don't I want to be able to walk down the street and most people not know who I am. So I'm really enjoying not being as famous as you think I am.
0: How do you introduce yourself to people because you're you're a social commentator, you're an author, you're a podcaster. So you do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But do you have
1: a favorite job title that you go with? Well, the thing I enjoy doing most about what I do is doing the show uh, Trigonometry, which is the set behind me, as you can see, where myself and Francis, we interview uh, very interesting people about culture and politics and sometimes sports and sometimes, you know, uh, neuroscience or whatever. Just things that we we find interesting. Historians especially are, are something that we're... Really keen on, uh, and so I suppose YouTuber now, which is a, is a weird title to to give yourself, but YouTuber is probably the thing that I go with. But in addition to that, I also have a very popular Substack where I write. Uh, I write satirical stuff every now and again, so more comedic things. And we do a live show here on Trigonometry three nights a week that we call Raw, uh, which is uh, the two of us just joking around about the subjects of the day and doing every crazy accent under the sun. You know, we get people from japan sending us yen and saying can you please read this out in a japanese accent we get people from hong kong and china and korea and italy and america and wherever and we just do everything uh and that way we kind of feel that nobody should be offended because everybody's included you know the funny thing the other day somebody sent us uh, we have some fans in saudi arabia and um United Arab Emirates and they sent us a Shama, which is the traditional headdress. So when we read out their super chats, we put that on and, you know, we just make an exciting, funny comedy show for people as well, uh, which is something that increasingly, you're not really allowed to do in 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 our sort of Western culture that you know the idea that you should make fun of everyone and include everyone in the humor is, is sort of wrong nowadays. People say you know you're supposed to think that you know uh, brown people or Asian people or black people that they, they, they need to be treated differently, extra carefully. And I, we don't really buy into that mentality at all. We we actually believe in including everyone and, and having a uh, humor that everyone can feel part of, you know. So the amazing thing about the positions that we're in is you, you have a large audience who are interested in the things that you're interested in. And for us, you know, the journey of trigonometry has always been just like, what do we want to educate ourselves about? Well, let's get on a guest that can tell us that and our audience are just kind of along for the ride. So I feel bad, but also good, and we're slightly using our audience just to f- fuel our own curiosity. But on the other hand, they enjoy it, we enjoy it, everybody has a good time. A bit of a
0: context is that uh, we are normally known as the, the uh, outlet or, or the platform where we deliver the most authentic perspectives and insights from Asia uh, to the global audience. But One of our mission statements is actually to bring people's voices and cultures together. And that includes bridging social and cultural gaps between Asia and the West. And as you know, it's like in the current climate, everything just becomes so divided and polarized. And, you know, as far as like the cultural gap, it just seems so vast. Pretty much the only media outlet that we have to rely on even for the Asian audience wanting to learn more about what's happening in the UK and America is what BBC, uh, CNN, Fox. That's that's pretty much about it, right? And so, especially for regular people like me and and other people out there, they just want to hear some authentic perspectives. And you know, you have a very interesting background, which we can go more into. Uh, is that you actually have a Russian background and. You know, maybe one of the fun street interview topics that that we were thinking of doing is going to Russia and say, hey, do you think that Russia is part of Asia? It'll be very interesting to hear about how you grew up, what you're reading of the current uh, state of the Western society.
1: Well, it's it's, uh, it's fascinating that you talk about whether you know Russia is Asia, because obviously a big part of Russia is Asia and some of it is Europe. So together, it's definitely part of Asia for sure. And I actually, you know, I, I wasn't born in Russia. I was born in, in a country that no longer exists, the Soviet Union. Uh, and I lived in many different parts of it, including uh, in Uzbekistan. Uh, which is Central Asia. In the UK, it's funny because actually in the UK, when they say Asian, what they mean is Indian subcontinent, which is hilarious to me. And also they group them into one and they're like, oh, the Asian community think this. And I'm like, well, Pakistan and India who are about (laughs) to have a nuclear war, they're they're the same. (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? Uh, So we're very ignorant in the West because I think we can afford to be. And also, I I think you're right as well that I think probably uh, if you're just watching CNN and BBC and Fox News, you probably don't get an accurate picture of of what's happening in the West. Look, from my perspective, you know, as a satirist and as someone who who's always been, you know, I always saw the job of a comedian and a satirist to to challenge some of the craziness that is happening in their country or in their society of the day. So I've been very focused on, on the thing that you discussed with Yomi Park, which is elements of woke, what we call woke culture here, which is, to me, a very anti-Western way of looking at things. We should be honest, while I'm a big fan of Western culture and I think it has many advantages, it also has disadvantages and the Western way of doing things has disadvantages. But for me, it's I like it. It's, it's what works for me and that's why I've been very concerned that in the West we're becoming increasingly antagonistic about the very things that make the West, has, have made the West so successful and, and to me, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of inquiry, freedom of science and research, these are things that are really, really important. And by the way, you know, the freedom to make jokes. It's not an accident that the the most successful comedians have always been in the West. There's not so much a culture of it in Russia and in many other places. Because, uh, you know, if you are a a comedian in China who mocks Xi Jinping, I don't think you're going to survive very long. It's the same in, in Russia. There There is limits on what you can joke about. And so that freedom is to me where the cultural success of the West really comes from because people are able to explore and people are able to try different things and people don't live in fear of of, of an authoritarian government uh, that that would come and crack down on them. And so to me that's, that's one of the reasons I think I've become quite a prominent voice to, in, to the extent that I have is I've been an outsider from a, a society that was authoritarian and remains authoritarian who, who now live in the west and is going guys guys why wh- 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 why are you doing this this isn't the, the western idea that i came to understand and it's almost like people in the west have become so focused on their own uh, mistakes or the mistakes of their society in the past that it now takes an outsider to say guys not everything about the west is bad we should be comfortable with our history because you know, of all the terrible things that Western countries have done through through history, and, and they have, we should recognize that this is kind of the path of every society. Russian Empire was not exactly this uh, beacon of, you know, diversity and, and freedom and whatever. Uh, and no society was. And I think you're right. This is where... Cultural understanding and historical understanding is important because it helps us to see each other and ourselves in, in a In a correct way as opposed to thinking that we're all bad or we're just all perfect and good You know that that's why I think uh, my role is, has been
0: I Really like how you said that it sometimes takes an outsider to take a look at it from a fresh perspective and say whoa What's going on here? How do you go from? you know, being uh, someone who couldn't probably speak English when you were even an, like 9 or 10. And then and how do you go from that to being an exceptionally well-read and, uh, you know, somebody who is obviously very well-informed and, and you're now giving speeches at
1: like Oxford and just making all these uh, media appearances. How did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Moscow and for the first four years of my life I lived there. Then my family moved to Tashkent in Uzbekistan, which was still part of the Soviet Union. I lived there for a few years. Then moved back to Moscow, and around this time, uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing. It was a crazy time uh, in which many people lost everything that they had, and it was a very turbulent and unstable period of time. But it was also a time of opportunity, and my father, being a young guy at the time, very clever guy, him and a few friends started a small business, and then that business became bigger and then became bigger and became bigger, and before they knew it, they were... Uh, you know, they, they, they owned Russia's first bank. That's the kind of crazy world that, that they lived in at the time, or one of Russia's first banks. Uh, and so there was a very short period in my, in my family's history when my family had quite a lot of money. Uh, and then in about 1996, 95, this is when Boris Yeltsin was president, before Vladimir Putin. Uh, my father was actually a junior minister in Boris Yeltsin's cabinet. He was uh, a minister in the government. And due to the way that Russian politics worked at the time, he was falsely accused of a bunch of things and he had to flee Russia under false identity. And it was only recently that he, he was cleared of all these ch- completely false charges and now is able to travel to Russia and, and so on. In the interim, there was a short period of my family history when they had money and so they sent me to boarding school in England and uh, I arrived, as you say, speaking very little English. Uh, but, you know, it's the sort of environment where like you it's like being thrown into to the lake and you, you either swim or you don't. And it's sink or swim. I, I learned to swim pretty quickly. Um, you know, I picked up the, the English as quickly as I could. And then, uh, you know, I had more difficulties in my life. I went to university and by the time I got to university, my family really had no money at all. So there was no way I was going to be able to finish my degree. Uh, And that meant that I had, you know, by this time, my wife and I already got together. So I had to start to find a way to provide for my family, basically. And um, uh, the only skills that I really had is I spoke two languages pretty well. And Mm. so I started a translation uh, business, I became a freelance translator, translating documents and all sorts of, you know, uh, banking documentation and Vladimir Putin's speeches and computer games that I used to play. That's one of the cool things that I ever got to do. Actually, one of my favorite ever computer games, I was one of the team that that translated it into English because it was made in Ukraine. And then after about 10 years of doing that, I got very, very bored. I, I'd done everything in translation. I couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. Uh, And I I wanted to to have a more of a creative outlet for for the things that I had to say and the jokes that I wanted to make, so I became a stand-up comedian and I uh, did that for about five or six years. As I was doing that, I felt that there was something weird happening in the culture. Something was strange. People were now behaving and speaking in ways that were very unusual and, and quite weird. Suddenly, you know, when I started comedy, you had to have as many super offensive jokes as you possibly could, and if you didn't, you were kind of a bit of a pussy, and you know, it was, it, was, it was like that. Almost too much so, you know, people were just being offensive for the sake of being offensive, and I found that almost a bit too much. And then, within a year or two, it flipped completely, and now you couldn't make any offensive jokes, and you had to be really careful, and you couldn't say anything because somebody would be offended. And this was around the time of Brexit and Donald Trump being elected. And I found it strange because it was very common for people to say really offensive things and actually not very funny things about uh, Trump supporters or about Brexit voters. You know, oh, it's just old people. We can't wait for them all to die. And I, 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 I thought that was a bit strange. Like you can't simultaneously say we shouldn't make any offensive jokes, but also at the same time say that, you know, old people should die. (laughs) I, I thought that was a bit, a bit weird. And I was just kind of trying to understand what was happening because I wasn't a fan of Donald Trump. I didn't vote for Brexit, but I also felt that we had a responsibility to listen to why people felt that they had to vote for these people or they had to vote for this movement and try and understand where they were coming from in the same way that you talk about intercultural understanding i felt we had a duty to understand where people were coming from within our own societies and the very simplistic narratives that we were getting from the mainstream media like oh you know brexit voters they're just racist they hate immigrants and i went well look i've lived in britain since 1995 96. i'm a dark-skinned immigrant with a foreign name the number of racist incidents I've experienced can count on the fingers of one hand, right? So if you were telling me that these huge movements that captured more than half of the public in this country and in America is simply about racism, I know that's not true. It just isn't, it can't be. Because if this was such a racist country, I mean, it's funny to me, I experienced more racism in Russia (laughs) than I did in England ever. Uh, And so this narrative seemed to me just completely wrong and simplistic. And that's why we started trigonometry, because we were like, let's find out what's actually going on. Right. Because what we're being told by the mainstream media increasingly doesn't make sense. And that's how we started five years ago, just two idiot comedians, you know, getting brilliant people on and asking them questions and trying to find out what's going on. And over time, you know, as you say, you learn from interesting people and you start to formulate some of your own thoughts about what you see happening in the world. And I have some, as you say, strongly held opinions about some of the things that are happening in Western society that I've tried to communicate about in my book, because, you know, I don't see, uh, the main thing that concerns me really is this constant self-flagellation, you know, the whipping yourself for your past crimes and, and so on. I don't see that as healthy. I think the West's uh has allowed a small minority of people to infect how we see ourselves and how we talk about ourselves and so it's it's a constant process of education for me talking to different people making my mind up and going okay we've listened to this person he's a bit extreme but he makes some interesting points and maybe this lady that we've had on she makes some good points but again you know is that how far i want to go in this direction and just you know it's a it's a as i said earlier it's a constant process of self-education and our audience is, is along for the ride but is it possible for you to travel to russia and see what it's
0: like i mean not obviously since the whole russia ukraine Uh, war started, but uh, you of all people actually understand what it's like to live in a society where you don't technically have the freedom of speech. Mm. Uh, But for people who might not appreciate that, what's it like? So what can
1: you not say in Russia? Well, right now, you mentioned the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which they call a special military operation, if you call it a war, uh, you can be prosecuted and put into prison for 10 to 15 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and one of the insane things that was happening, particularly earlier on, because there was a big eruption of protest early on, of course, and, and concern yes. about the war, um, people went out in, uh, to protest with, with placards, with signs. Uh, you know, they would say peace or for peace or I want peace or whatever. And these people would be arrested and taken away. So then people started to go out on their own because if you protest with other people, this is like a a protest and that's illegal. So if you go on your own, it's called a single man picket. You're allowed to do that. So they would go out, they would get arrested, right, if they had a sign. So then some people started going out on their own and having no sign, they just pretend to have a sign
0: and they would get arrested as well. Is this something that you've actually witnessed or is it showing in some media outlets or something? Yeah,
1: so I can't go to Russia right now because I'd, I'd get arrested straight away. But uh, I have friends and family in Russia uh, who live there who, who are sending me all this, uh, all, all this footage. And, and the, these are genuinely things that were happening. The funniest thing uh, that I ever heard about this was there's a, guy, there's a Russian, it's not a Russian name, it's one of the ethnic groups within Russia called, and the name is Zamir. And in Russia, mir means peace, right? And za means for. So his name literally means, in, in the Russian language, for peace. And he arrived uh, at an airport. And you know how when you arrive at an airport, taxi drivers will sometimes have a sign with your name. So this dude had the sign on and he nearly got arrested. The, the police came and they were like, what are, you, what are you doing? That's the level of paranoia that it got to. Because of the war and, you know, uh, growing up in the Soviet Union, it was really weird because there was several types of truth that, that we had. There was the public truth, what you would say in public if, if you were to be asked your opinion about something. Then there was what you might say with your friends. And mm. then there was what you would say around the kitchen table. Right. And, and, the, and people who lived in the Soviet Union, I imagine it's the same in North Korea. They got used to knowing what they're they're supposed to think in different contexts. So you literally had different realities depending on where you were. And so right now, for example, the truth is nobody really knows what public opinion is of the war in Russia. Because if you you have official polling that says 80% of people in Russia support Vladimir Putin, it could be true. It could well be true that that's the case. But I also know that around the kitchen table, people have their own conversations that never become public. And so if someone walks up to you in the street, like, what do you think about the war? They Mm. know it's on camera. They're not going to give you an honest answer. And so, uh, you know, the example I always give uh, Ceausescu, the Romanian dictator, towards the end of the the Cold War, he had a 95 percent approval rating the day before he was arrested and summarily executed. So in that kind of society, you don't really know the exact nature of public opinion, what people feel, what they think, why they're going along with certain things, because everybody has their own private reality and the public reality because they know what they're supposed to say. And it's a weird experience to grow up, and I don't imagine in a free country like South Korea you really have that. Sometimes we get, I suppose, one of these quote,
0: constructive criticisms uh, hmm. when we, let's say, do street interviews on, on the streets of a, uh, Beijing or Shanghai in China, you know, you sometimes see people saying like, oh, you know, what's the point of asking these people anything? They know they're in front of the camera, the answer is going to be all fake anyway. But I suppose our attitude has been like, no, we're not exactly trying to ascertain the public sentiment for political purposes. It's at least to, better to hear what they think and why they think the way they do. Hmm. Would you rather not hear them out at all and then rely on what CNN says of what people think in China? So that's sort of been our stance. So you know, we
1: just want to at least kind of humanize and just well, oh, this is what everyday people sound like. And that's totally legit, man. There's nothing wrong with that. I just uh, I I'm just saying that in a, in an authoritarian society, you've got to be. Uh, you're probably not going to get the entire truth on exactly. controversial subject. This is how it was in the Soviet Union, by the way. This is why I'm, uh, I get quite angry with people like Bernie Sanders and people like that who went over to the Soviet Union. He went to, to the Soviet Union on a, on a honeymoon, believe it or not. I talk about this in my book and he would have been shown a completely fake reality if you go to visit north korea you're not as a westerner or as anyone really you're not going to get to see the reality they will right. take you to a place that they will pre- pretend is the real deal but is not um so yeah you just got to be wary of the fact that people most people w- will not be honest because as we talked about just now uh if you are honest about certain things you may go to prison for it uh, and people have been arrested for criticizing the quote-unquote special military operation, which is uh, Russia's war in Ukraine.
0: Having lived in those quote-unquote authoritarian regimes, Mm. you know, what would be sort of your ideal image of the West? It's like, oh, our environment is like, we have this multiple levels of truth, but man, only if we were in America or in other free countries, Mm -hmm. then we could say whatever we want to say. I mean, what was sort of like your perception of the West
1: well, you hit it on the head. I mean, uh, at the time when I was growing up in Russia, uh, we were all taught that uh, the West is evil, and ca- you know these capitalist bourgeois, you know, evil people. Uh, even uh, you know, my family were not big fans of the Soviet regime, but even they bought into the propaganda that the West is evil and whatever. And it was only really when they could they could yeah, go. Yeah. So I give you an example. My my mother. She grew up on the very border with Finland. Uh, This is Northwest Russia. And uh, her family, like I say, they were not huge fans of the regime, but she remembers as a girl, like going to the border with Finland and like going, you know, screw you Finns, because that's what the kids were all taught. Uh, But to me, what I learned when I was growing up in the West was that the difference is Uh, That this is a society where you're supposed to be able to have your own opinion and people don't bother you. Like, we have a a joke in in Russia, you know, why can't you have sex in Red Square? It's because you'd get too much advice from the passers-by. Because everyone is up in your business. Everyone is telling you, you know, you're supposed to do this. Like, and, and it's not just Russia. Ukraine is the same in many other parts of this former Soviet Union. It's just part of the culture. There's a more kind of community vibe. Like I remember my wife and I were walking in like early spring somewhere in Ukraine. I don't remember the city. I think it was actually in Lviv in western Ukraine. And she had flip-flops on. And this, and she went into a shop and I was standing outside because I didn't want to go into yet another shop with her. So I was standing outside and this woman came up to me and she said, excuse me, can you, is your, is your wife, is she okay with the flip flops? Because Tell her, she might get cold. You know like everybody's up in your business all the time it's this kind of and look it has many positive aspects because people are looking out for each other you could argue but in england in particular like no one is you could you could be doing you could be walking along almost naked in freezing winter and nobody would even everyone pretend that it's not happening you know that's kind of how it is uh america is a bit different what i learned when i went to america first couple of times is. People are very respectful of your distance, but if they feel like uh, you need some help, you're standing in a queue and you're discussing, you know, that thing that's on the menu, is that this or that, like people will chip in and they will give you uh, advice. So it's kind of halfway between the two cultures. Uh, But generally speaking, the thing I always really appreciated about the West was the idea that you are free to live your life the way you want. As long as you are uh, respectful of the law and you are not interfering in other people's lives, live your life how you want. Right. Do whatever you want with your life, as long as you're not hurting other people. And to me, that is a very important principle, actually, because coming from a society where you were told what to think, you were told how to behave, you were told what you're supposed to think and not supposed to think, etc. The fact of it is about 80 percent of people in Russia get their news from t- television.
0: Right. The state media. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, there is no other media in Russia right, right. anymore. <laughs> uh, the first thing that Vladimir Putin did when he came to power is consolidate the media he got rid of any independent people who owned independent TV channels. So there is no other media in Russia other than state media. Even even to date, like what about yeah.
0: Facebook, uh, YouTube? Facebook
1: Facebook is shut down in Russia. You need a VPN if you want to use Facebook in Russia. So in Russia right now, I think there is a very strong indoctrination element going on in terms of what you see on television. I watch some of these programs kind of for research, and if you take them literally, it's insane. Like, you literally have people on TV screaming, we need to drop nukes on Poland, we need to drop nukes on New York, we need to drop nukes on Washington. Uh, And uh, that is the informational space that people are operating in, uh, because that's, that's what they're being told. So there's a very aggressive... Uh, thing going on in schools, uh, children are now uh, being uh, given classes about how to fire weapons and how to apply bandages and all this sort of thing. So it's it's become a very war-obsessed society in that way. But as I say, no one really knows, not even people, not e- I can call up someone in Russia now and say, you know, what's going on, what do people think? And they wouldn't know because you don't really know what's going on in people's private homes and their private opinions. So it's very hard to judge. So if we're talking about, since we're on the topic of uh, the war, it doesn't seem to be anywhere close to, you know, how is this going to play out? You know, the the Russian mindset when it comes to leadership is you got to understand, Russia has never had a a single democratic transition of power. People don't expect uh, to have democracy. And the Russian Attitude to, to the leader, whether it was the Tsar or the Secretary of the commun- General Secretary of the Communist Party or now president. No one expects these people to really be accountable democratically. Uh, the, the leader of the country is seen in Russia to this day, you know, s- somewhat as being anointed from above. They are appointed by God, really. And if you have a good leader, then you are blessed. And if you have a bad leader, It's something to endure, and so things like war, they're not really seen as, you know, we elected the wrong guy, and now he's done the wrong thing, and at the next election we have an opportunity to change that. It's seen more as, well, this is a period of time when we have this strong leader in Vladimir Putin who stabilized the country in the 90s. He genuinely has a lot of credit in the bank with ordinary Russians because he stabilized the country after the chaos uh, that we saw. And now, well, look, war has come, you know, we have to endure. That that will be a lot of the mentality around that. Whether people are happy about it, again, as I say, that's really something that's very difficult to gauge. But of course, the longer the war goes on, the more war fatigue there will be. We saw this in, uh, this is a big part of why the Soviet Union started to go downhill is, uh, involvement in places like Afghanistan, where you saw uh, that, you know, Russia or the Soviet Union wasn't achieving its goals, but there were a lot of people who were uh, who were suffering as a result of being involved. And the, the, the scale of the war in Russia, uh, the war in Ukraine rather now, is such that a lot of casualties, uh, a lot of chaos going on, the Russian troops are not very well supplied. Uh, that So the message is getting back that rather than, than being this triumphant triumphant war effort. Actually Russian soldiers as they've always been are being thrown into the meat grinder without being properly supported, led by idiot generals, etc. This is kind of the narrative now, including from people who support the war and who actually want the war to be more aggressive, they are now very upset about what's happening because they're seeing that Russian soldiers don't have enough ammunition, the artillery isn't as effective because they don't they have a shortage of shells and so on. Um, In terms of how it plays out, nobody really knows because the the moment we're recording this late March, um, what we're waiting for is uh, that part of the world, Eastern Europe, during late spring is, uh, they they call it Rasputitsa, which is when there's a lot of rain and there's a lot of mud, and that means that you can't really attack effectively with tanks and armored personnel carriers, etc. So what has been happening in in recent months is, Russia has been throwing everything it has at this tiny little town called Bakhmut uh, in in eastern Ukraine, and they've been throwing uh, a lot of infantry at it in these frontal assaults against fortified Ukrainian positions, Both sides are taking very heavy casualties, Uh, and I think the reason that it's happening isn't so much that this is some kind of great military strategy, but rather it's a political idea, which is we need to free up as much of these two eastern regions that they call the Donbass, and if if we can be seen to have liberated them, at least we have something to sell to our people. Um, They haven't been as successful in that as they would have wished, and now what we have to see is what happens in April, because uh, there will be almost certainly, both sides are talking about it, uh, the Ukrainians have spent this time training up large forces in the West, in Britain and other places, using Western tanks and armoured personnel carriers and other equipment. And the purpose of that, as I understand it, is to have a counteroffensive once this mud season is over, in order to see if they can take back some of their territory. And I think... Everything now depends on how that goes. Will the Ukrainians be able to be effective in pushing Russian forces further out? If you remember, at the beginning of the war, Russia almost had control of the entirety of eastern and central Ukraine, everything to the east of the central line. Ukrainians succeeded in pushing them out of almost all of that, and now it remains to be seen whether the counteroffensive is going to be successful, and that's when I think you're going to see how the next stage of that unfolds you know, you
0: must be put in this unique position, uh, that people almost like come to you for advice when it comes to what's really happening. we can only rely on the mainstream uh, media from the West. Uh, So maybe they say that oh, Russia is almost done. But we were just
1: wondering, is that actually true? No, no, Russia is not almost done. No. And this is what people should be clear about. Look, I've been very clear in that my own view is Russia was wrong to invade. I think what Russia is doing there is immoral uh no doubt a huge number of war crimes have been committed we actually had a guy on our show an interview we haven't released who's uh, he's more of like a, a trauma guy he works with that and he was over in ukraine and he talks about you know the, the the amount of sexual uh violence that was committed against the the civilian population by russian troops is just off the charts And so, you know, what Russia is doing is terrible, but that does not mean that we should engage in some kind of wishful thinking and pretend, you know, Russia is on the brink of collapse. That's not true. Um, Russia historically has a tremendous ability to absorb casualties. Historically, Russia is able to absorb huge numbers of its soldiers being killed and maimed without really having much domestic unrest. Uh, And that is for the reasons that we talked about earlier, which is, you know, war, well, you know, we just got to tolerate it, we got to endure it. The ability to suffer is almost like a Russian superpower uh, in some ways, sadly. I don't know if you're aware of this period of Russian history, but just before the Soviet Union was invaded by Nazi Germany in June 1941, uh, actually the Soviet Union had been fighting what they call the Winter War with Finland. And this was a war in which the Soviet Union invaded Finland, a tiny country. My great-grandfather actually fought in that war on the Soviet side. Uh, And they took hundreds of thousands of casualties for this tiny little country because the Finns fought so bravely. Actually, the sniper, they call him the White Death, Uh, the sniper in the entire history of military conflict uh, who has the highest kill count is this Finnish guy who I think didn't even have optics. He had iron sights on his crappy little wooden rifle. And he's responsible for like hundreds and hundreds of enemy kills. And so that war was a war in which the Soviet Union had huge numbers of casualties, but still was able to to get some kind of victory, you could say, in that Finland had to give up part of its territory. But what they did do is they achieved sovereignty and independence, and Finland is still an independent country to this day, as you know. And I think that will almost certainly be, and I've been saying this from day one, at least in the best case scenario for Ukraine, what happens with them. They need to defend their country, defend their territory to a point where Russia basically gets tired of fighting. And at that point, they can say, look, you've taken Crimea. And Crimea is very important to Russia for strategic reasons because it's their way of projecting naval power into the Black Sea. It's very, very important to Russia. They, I don't think they would give it up for almost anything. You know, Ukraine is in the middle of a war effort, right? When you're fighting a war, you have to go, we're going to get our land back, everything is Ukraine, we have to fight. And I understand that. And I, I was speaking to somebody the other day who literally, this guy who's like an IT consultant, He's not some guy who's, you know, got huge muscles or whatever. He's just a normal guy, drove his family to the border with Poland, dropped them off, kissed his daughters, kissed his wife, waved goodbye, and went to the front line, right? This is what ordinary Ukrainians are doing. They're standing up for their country. They're saying, you know, family, you go, you be safe. I'm going to go to the front line to defend my country. That's what's happening. And I think that's what they need to do. And of course, because of that, the narrative in Ukraine now is, you know, we're gonna get everything back and whatever. But I think the truth of it is long-term, the likely outcome will be they have to concede some territory but what they need to get in exchange is long-term security, and that means membership of NATO. Or I'm afraid to say, you know, speaking to you, I understand the trauma for the Korean people of the of the split between South Korea and North Korea and having this D- DMZ in the middle and, and all of the terrible things that come with that, families being split and all of that. That may be one of the ways that this ends up is some kind of some kind of protection for Ukraine so that at least they can't be invaded again. That's what they need. Because if, if we have what we had in 2014, which is OK, you know, let Russia have some more land, you'll just come back again and this will never be resolved. In your opinion, what is the likelihood that we'll achieve that sort of a compromise without, you know, Russia just resorting to nukes? It's very important. Before I say what I'm about to say, that we all recognize that we have not been as close to a nuclear conflict as we are now for a very long time. Yeah. I think we should all acknowledge that, right? Because you see in the Black Sea, Russian jets bumping into American drones. And yeah. crashing them into the, the ocean. Uh, I don't know if you would have followed this, but to, to, to a large extent, they don't even bother reporting this in the mainstream media anymore. It's very common now for American and Russian jets to fly next to each other and give each other the finger, like like in Top Gun. Oh, really? Yeah, this is happening all the time. Russian naval ship, uh, Russian uh, some kind of destroyer, I think chased off an American submarine from the coast of Japan recently. Like all of this is happening all the time. So. We are not in a good place as the world. We are closer to nuclear conflict than we have been for a long time. That does not mean we're close to nuclear conflict, right? This is the important distinction. And people, this nuance sometimes get lost. People think that, you know, if we're even a tiny little bit closer, that means we should do everything possible to immediately alleviate this. And of course, we don't want to be going down that path. On the other hand, do you allow countries with nuclear weapons to invade whoever they want. Because that, to me, does not set a good precedent, right?
0: Right, right.
1: And so there is always this trade-off of how do we manage this carefully. Now, from my perspective, as I look at Russia now, what is being said in Russia now, what people are doing in Russia now, the way that Putin is talking about things, I actually think they have dialed back the nuclear rhetoric a lot since the war started initially what i think they were worried about is nato actually getting physically involved and so putin was always saying you know we will defend ourselves with any means necessary and whatever he kept talking about the nuclear thing doesn't really talk about it now and i think one of the reasons is using nuclear weapons for russia uh would be a complete uh dead end and would actually be terrible first of all for them from many Mm. different perspectives number one we, we we see that russia you know has some help from china at the moment china would not go along with russia using nuclear weapons that they wouldn't remain allies with russia india has been kind of neutral india wouldn't be neutral if your country was dropping nukes all over the place right uh the response from the western uh, the western allies of ukraine and the western international community would be so much stronger than it has been if russia used nuclear weapons and of course from a narrative perspective, if your entire narrative is Ukraine is Russia, these are Russian people, we must liberate them. Well, mm. if that's your narrative, why are you then dropping nukes on them? Right. That that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so, from from a purely strategic perspective, uh, it makes absolutely no sense for Russia to be nuclear to be using nuclear weapons. It would be a complete dead end. I think they know it. And so a lot of the rhetoric is simply about attempting to scare people in the West uh, in terms of providing support. But we have seen, if you look at the actual trajectory of the last year, you know, people said, well, we can't give the Ukrainians heavy weapons. We can't give them artillery. Well, then they gave them a bit of artillery. Russia did nothing. So they gave them more artillery. Russia did nothing. Then they're like, well, we can't possibly give them anti-missile systems so they can defend themselves from Russian missile attacks, right? That would be escalation. They gave them missiles. What happened? Nothing. Then they said, we can't give them armored personnel carriers. That would be too much. Now they have armored personnel carriers. Then we're like, we can't give them tanks. Now the the Ukrainians are training with Abram tanks and Challenger 2 tanks and Leopard 2 tanks from Germany. And they are about to be deployed in the conflict. You know, there are people who feel the West shouldn't be involved. There are people who feel the West should have been involved more and earlier. I actually think, generally speaking, the West has played it about right in that we give a little bit and we see what happens. We give a little bit. And so Russia never can say, oh, now you've gone too far because it's like, what, we gave them 20 armored personnel carriers and that's your red line? That's a bit. Do you you see what I'm saying? Um, So I think people are right to be concerned that Russia and the United States are in a more hostile posture towards each other than they've been for a long time. However... We have to recognise that that is not just down to us. Russia has a part to play in this. We can't control this uh, to to a large extent. And you can't allow a country to use its nuclear arsenal to bully the entire world into allowing them to invade other countries. That's where we are from my perspective. I don't think it's in Russia's interest or in Putin's interest to be using nuclear weapons. I don't think he would do, do unless his life was personally in danger. But the reason we should still be concerned about it is... You Know, escalation isn't all about uh, you know, people sat down and planned stuff. You know, someone shoots out a drone, someone gets pissed off, uh, a Russian jet gets you know, you know, crashes because it's crashed into a drone, the pilot dies, and suddenly we've got ourselves an international incident, and things can spiral out of control. So, we've got to be very careful about things like that, and I think you know, screaming and shouting about how the West needs to be more involved. We actually need to dial down the rhetoric and just on the lowdown, continue to provide the Ukrainians with what they need to push Russian forces out of Ukraine. I think that would be a much smarter way of doing it instead of running around bragging how many weapons we've given them and, you know, how much we've escalated the situation.
0: What's going to be the impact of this uh, on the UK economy? Because I know that you guys are... You know, things are things are difficult with with inflation and, and you know gas prices and and what's the uh, the the public sentiment in the UK regarding the the situation in in Russia and Ukraine?
1: Well, the public sentiment in the UK is overwhelmingly supportive of our efforts to uh, to to help Ukraine. If you look online, you might not get that impression, but generally speaking, if you ask the ordinary person, they're very much on on board with continuing. Uh, To help the Ukrainians. The economic impact of that hasn't been major, actually, because uh, we had a very mild winter and gas prices are now starting to to fall again. Um, and, And the problems that we have are much more likely to be economic problems of our own making. Uh, it's one of the things I talked about in my Oxford speech about our obsession with net zero and the fact that we keep printing money and all that. I don't know what the situation is in your part of the world with that. Perhaps you, are probably bought into the same idea that, you know, we can just keep printing money forever, uh, and everything will be fine. which is so stupid, but that's what they do. They just keep I know. printing money. And yeah. I'm not <laughs> a, I'm not an economic expert, but I just have this t- very simple idea, which is there's no such thing as a free lunch. And you cannot continue to borrow from your grandchildren indefinitely before you start to get problems right Um, so i think i think our concerns economically are much more of that nature than it is anything to do with the war in ukraine Uh, and of course the other thing is you know the pandemic showed us that while it was it was economically globalization was a good idea because we could have things made cheaply in china and shipped over here We did find out, though, that, you know, when when the shit hits the fan, you know, China is going to act in its own self-interest and it's going to, you know, make sure they've got the PPE and they've got the antibiotics and they've got the things they need before we get them. And so this also applies to energy. If you make yourself dependent on cheap Russian gas instead of using your own energy that you do actually have. This is the thing that I don't understand It's like we pretend to be green in the West by outsourcing energy production and steel making and all these other things to other countries where they're made to a lesser industrially robust standard than they would be in the UK. So we can pretend to be green. And then suddenly Europeans like the Germans who were warned about this, even by Donald Trump, who many people disliked, but he was right on this. He said, look, if you continue to get into bed with Russia, they will use it against you. And guess what happened? That's exactly what happened, right? Uh, so making yourself dependent on countries which, you know, we don't have to think of the Chinese or the Russians as our enemies, but we have to recognize that they have different interests to us, strategically speaking. Right. And so if you make yourselves overly dependent on them, they then have the opportunity to use that against you or you'll be vulnerable. And we saw this during the pandemic. So there's a whole deglobalization process going on um, where I think that will have the biggest impact on our economies more than anything else, because globalization, it had many negative impacts on certain groups of people in certain parts of our countries but broadly speaking it did make the world a lot richer it just did because we were able to trade and work together that period of time seems to me to be kind of partly over um and i think the economic problems we're going to be facing the the war in ukraine is going to be a very small part of that actually
0: speaking of the pandemic i mean we did hear from this part of the world how uk had this like strict lockdown policy where you know you show footage of just like nobody on the street, and, uh, and I'm pretty sure there were there were a lot of repercussions as a result of that. And and I mean, God forbid if we experience another pandemic, everybody's not they they're not in agreement or in sync as to what is the right protocol to follow, whether it be regarding masks or lockdowns. So. I just feel like things just get more and more
1: chaotic because mm-hmm. now we don't know who to trust or what to trust. I don't know what your views on this are uh, or, you know, what the situation was uh, in, in you, uh, over there. But uh, in the UK, I certainly felt that we, for, and, and, and by the way, these aren't my words. These are the words of one of the scientists responsible, a guy called Neil Ferguson. He said, we didn't think lockdowns were possible until the Chinese did them and i'm kind of going well is that who we want to model ourselves on because no offense to, to china but they have a different culture and a different way of doing things and if i wanted to li- to live under the chinese communist party and their way of doing things i'd go and live in china and i thought when i came to britain that that's not what i was signing up for and so there were several things that concerned me about the, the pandemic response we had in this country. Number one, I supported the first lockdown, which, as you say, was very strict. But we were told this for three weeks. And I was like, look, I can stay at home for three weeks. Uh, you know, I have, you know, I work too hard. I'm going to spend a bit of time with my wife. You know, this is a dangerous pandemic. We don't know what the hell is going on. Uh, you know, if, if elderly people are going to be protected by the fact that I go out for a walk once a day, I'm a responsible citizen. I'm happy to do that for a few weeks. That's a reasonable thing of a government to ask its citizens to do. And at the time, with the information that we had, that is, to me, an absolutely legitimate point of view. However, you know, fast forward and two years later, we know that this isn't the plague. We know that the people who are vulnerable to it is a small sliver of the population, mostly elderly And and people who are overweight and people who have other preconditions who we could protect as a targeted group instead of shutting down the entirety of our society. And it was becoming increasingly clear that having those sorts of restrictions for a very long time uh, was going to have a tremendous negative impact on society, on children's education, on children's mental well-being, uh, on physical health, on cancer diagnosis and all sorts of things. And... uh, over that period of time i went from you know the government saying we need to shut down for three weeks okay i'm prepared to put up with that to like this is way out of line and this is ridiculous and i'll be honest with you uh you know there was a minority of people who felt the way i did but the thing that scared me the most is the public became authoritarian or they were authoritarian and the authoritarianism was revealed most people did, well, they supported all of this. I mean, the, some, look, polls are not necessarily reliable, but some of the polling we saw in the UK, I mean, you'll laugh at this, I imagine, but there were people uh, who said 20% of the public said we should shut down all nightclubs forever, even if there's no COVID.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, we should make people wear masks, uh, make people wear masks on public transport forever. Even if there's no COVID. Healthy people wearing masks. That was something like 20% as well. So a lot of people, and let me use technical language, lost the fucking plot. They lost the fucking plot. They just they, they were so scared because of government propaganda, because the government didn't tell them the truth, which is this is a very serious disease for some people. This is a very serious disease for people who are vulnerable to this disease, let's focus on protecting those people, right? I would fully support that, and there were Nobel Prize winning scientists and people like Jay Bhattacharya and many others who said, we need targeted protection, we need focused protection, let's look after the people who need it and not shut down our entire economy and not imprison people in the homes for two years. Uh, however, uh, a lot of the public was so terrified by government messaging about this, uh, that they, just, they were just like, do whatever, just do something, and we don't care about civil liberties, we don't care about freedoms. And then they didn't care about free speech either because they started to censor the very scientists who were saying these things. They tried to smear them, they said these people were irresponsible, uh, to the point where, you know, look, I think one of the most crucial questions about this, you know, since we're talking about the Asian dimension of this is, where exactly did COVID come from? And this isn't, you know, to say, you know, it came from a lab in Wuhan and the Chinese must be made to suffer for this. No, but we need to know. I mean, this is a right, pandemic right. that killed millions of people. And as you say, there could be more pandemics and many pandemics have come out of that part of the world because it's very densely populated. What happened? Don't, don't, don't we think that we should find out about that? And yet, if you said two years ago, this virus came from a lab in China, you'd be censored scientists would be censored right so there's a lot of very strange things that happened during the pandemic uh, that worry me and i don't think that we learned the lessons from them at all yeah
0: exactly so if we didn't learn our lesson this time what's going to happen pretty much for the next one right Absolutely, even um right. even when i interviewed the leading uh infectious disease expert uh from korea who advised presidents and you know he was the one handling, like you know, SARS and and MERS and all that type of infectious disease. Mm. Even uh, he started from a position of like it's highly unlikely that it leaked from a lab, to later saying, look, the longer this this drags on and they cannot identify the intermediary host, uh,
1: it is possible. And he even himself was admitting to the possibility. And that's how science works, isn't it? I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is a really important point. Is The science is the process of testing out different hypotheses about what may be true. And you can't do that if some hypotheses are going to be banned on the Internet. Exactly. So what I was getting at is that by talking to this person,
0: then, you know, you're allowed to ask questions. It doesn't make sense to me why that type of conversation would be censored in, I suppose, Western media or in Western society. This sort of leads nicely into... Uh, the the issue of censorship. I do get the sense that a lot of honest conversations are being censored.
1: Am I am yeah. I correct in thinking that? Yeah, you are. And and look, by the way, uh, I mean one of the things that people seem to have forgotten, and this this used to be a very well understood thing. I think it was was it Thomas Jefferson who who said that he who sacrifices liberty for safety will uh, deserve will get neither and deserve neither. Right? Um, was, he said it better than that. But but the point is people have forgotten that freedom has a cost there's no there's no question about that right if you are in a free society that means that some people are going to do and say things that you don't like and that is the price that until recently western societies were prepared to pay but now we've got to the idea that we must get as much safety as we possibly can and freedom can be thrown onto the altar of that and I just don't buy that argument at all because look at what happened with the pandemic itself people thought you know what we're in a pandemic we can't have misinformation we can't have people who have a different take of it and of course you got to remember there were a lot of people who were spouting absolute crap people who were saying you know COVID is caused by 5G and all of this other nonsense right however the price you pay for scientists being able to do proper research and have proper conversations and get somewhere is that you're going to get some idiots on the internet talking about things that they don't understand that is the trade-off and to me that trade-off is worth it Uh, but people seem to have got this idea that safety has no trade-offs that you can be super safe And you're not going to pay a price in terms of your freedoms for that. Uh, And I remember I was, um, as I mentioned, on Question Time recently, and they they do a question uh, that is off camera to warm up the audience uh, as a a conversation. And the, the conversation was, should Donald Trump be allowed back on Facebook and Twitter? This was when he was unbanned. And for me, someone who's not a particularly big fan of his, but I thought it was outrageous that he got banned off those social media platforms. because he, he was, at the time, a sitting president of the United States. How can you ban a sitting president uh, from, from the public square, essentially? That's ridiculous. So I made that point, and there was a woman sitting next to me, uh, uh, some kind of politician, who said, no, I believe we must have the strictest rules about things that are said online, and we must have maximum safety. And... I was like, well, why don't you go to North Korea then? They have a lot of safety when it comes to the internet, right? People seem to have forgotten that that is the sliding scale that you're operating on. You can have more safety, but then you will have a lot less freedom. And to me, that is just an antithesis of the Western idea, of the entire thing of the Western project, which is built on the idea that we are free, and we're free to do research and, and make technological breakthroughs that will actually solve many of these problems and I think the pandemic is a perfect example of this because we in the UK now have a rec- we have excess deaths that we do not know where they're coming from right that are at a much higher level because of the things that we did during the lockdown right and countries like Sweden that pursued a much more uh, much less restrictive policy on these issues, they don't have the same excess death rate. So we may find out actually that our policies around uh, the response to COVID may in the long run have harmed more people than they saved. And that's why the pursuit of safety by sacrificing freedom often will actually be counterproductive. And what you'll find is you've sacrificed freedom and you didn't actually get the safety you were hoping for either. You might have that bit of a reputation for speaking out against the woke
0: culture but you know just talking to you like this you just have a really lot of uh, interesting insights about many different issues so what would be sort of your main
1: focus these days as far as some like a social issue well you know for me the main focus is uh you mentioned woke culture and something i've been speaking out against because it just uh, to me it's completely antithetical to 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 the truth of western values and and this Uh, Self-hatred and the belief that you know Western people are uniquely evil and and our atrocities are somehow so special and and ignoring everything else that's happened around the world. My focus is in how do we have a constructive conversation about the future, right? Uh, And I've I've been saying a lot recently: the future is not woke, the future is not anti-woke, the future is post-woke. We have to move past this stuff and start to come together around some shared values that we, we we can agree on. How about we take a step back and maybe for our viewers' benefit, uh, you
0: maybe you can get, give us a definition of what woke culture or wokeism actually means.
1: Well, the history of that word is interesting because it was a word that was initially used in a positive way by people who felt that they had access to some kind of new understanding of the world and mainly what it meant was that they were aware they were awake to uh systemic forces that were shaping society in such a way as to disadvantage minorities as to disadvantage women as to disadvantage sexual minorities and so on and so a part of it is to do with this uh, idea called intersectionality which is that we're not actually all equal under the law But actually what is happening in Western societies is some people are oppressed and some people are the oppressor. So if you're a straight white man born in England and raised in England, you benefit from these miraculous things called white privilege. You benefit from this interesting thing called male privilege. And if you're a a woman from, uh, I don't know, uh, if you're a black woman, let's say, you are oppressed because you're a woman and because you're black and you add all these things together and if you look at these things systemically you begin to see that some people are not equal some people are treated as unequal in our society and some people get unearned unfair benefits and advantages right and this was the idea essentially that there are certain groups of people that are disadvantaged And there are certain groups of people that are advantaged. That was what the idea of wokeness meant. And to a large extent, it resulted in this hypersensitivity about race. It resulted in this hypersensitivity about gender and sexual issues and so on. That really is where wokeness comes from. But then people like me came along and went, you guys are completely misunderstanding the situation. Most of the quote-unquote oppression that people experience isn't to do with their skin color, isn't to do with their sex or sexuality. Most of it in modern society is to do with how rich or poor you are. And so right, a right. black person who grows up, in wealth and pri- grows up in wealth and privilege, they're not disadvantaged like a black person who's living in, in an American ghetto or in a council estate in this country. And a white working class person and a black working class person have way more in common with each other in terms of how privileged or unprivileged they are versus a black or white person who is rich and wealthy and went to a good school, right? So from my perspective, what the woke people don't understand is they've essentially traded class analysis for this race and ethnic analysis, which to me is uh, very dangerous because once you, you know, you've got to understand Korea and Japan, they're very ethnically homogenous societies. You have mostly Korean people in Korea, and you have mostly Japanese people in Japan. But in the United, in the United States, and the United Kingdom, we have societies that are very ethnically mixed. And in that sort of society, it's a melting pot in America, and it's, it's a bit of a different vision in Britain, but, but nonetheless, we have a, a lot of different people from different ethnic backgrounds. The last thing you want to do is focus on people's race and ethnicity and make that matter. Because it's a very dangerous route to go down. Once you go down that route and you encourage people to think of themselves not as British or as American, but as black or Asian or Russian, you know, or whatever, you start to divide people into these tribes. And human beings are hardwired to think of each other in tribal terms. And intertribal conflict is the very nature of humanity. So that's part of it. Another part of it is these people are incredibly humorless and incredibly boring, right? <laughs> you know, this obsession with, and, and, and the reason is that they, they made their hypersensitivity about race and the desire to protect certain people into what we talked about earlier, right at the beginning of our conversation, which is you can't make jokes about Asian people. You can't make jokes about people from the Middle East. You can't make jokes about women or these minorities or those minorities because these people are oppressed. We, I think that is an incredibly insulting and offensive thing to be saying to people like, my friends from Saudi Arabia or from the United Arab Emirates, well, they can't take a joke in the same way that I can. It's okay to joke about Russians. It's okay to joke about Americans. It's okay to joke about Italians. It's okay to joke about men. But you can't joke about these other group of people as if there isn't anything that these people do that could be considered funny. Really? really Is, To me, that, that's racism. Who's saying that you can you now make jokes about them? Woke people. Who are they? Who are they? They're a group of people. They're about 10 to 15% of society based on on various research. Uh, And they are people who believe in a lot of this ideology. And the reason that they are as vocal and powerful as, as they are in terms of influencing the debate in our society is they are disproportionately represented in mainstream media. So if you watch a debate on, you know, a British morning television show they will always have one of these people who are offended by everything who think everyone's racist everything is you know everything is intolerant and bigoted and whatever and they constantly go on tv they're overrepresented on social media because social media leans in that direction and their ideas sound better on there and they are the ones going around to other people going you can't say this you can't joke about this you can't make these jokes so anytime anyone says something and everyone, everyone quote unquote is offended, it's not everyone that's offended. The majority of the people couldn't care less. It's a small minority of these woke journalists and woke comedians and woke commentators who impose their view of our society on the rest of us because they have access to the institutions. The mainstream media is populated by these people. The BBC is populated by these people. And they are essentially shaping the way we have uh, conversations about our society, because they are the screaming ones. They are the ones that shout the loudest. But I guess my question is that let's say you do make a funny joke,
0: uh, at least what you think is funny, and let's say that that uh, joke is directed at some group of people, and let's say it is
1: perceived to be offensive. Mm. What's going to happen to you if if you made that joke? If you are a stand-up comedian. On the comedy circuit and you depend on comedy clubs to book you you depend on comedy promoters to work with you you depend on your agent on not dropping you right then you're in big trouble because with our agent for example there are other comedians who are trying to get our agent to drop us all the time they're like hey why does this guy still represent these evil guys right this is how people operate there are comedy clubs that don't book certain comedians because someone complained in almost in in almost every comedy club i talk to people who host comedy shows the the level of complaints about comedians jokes has gone through the roof because every every person in the audience now feels entitled this is the social media culture It's like i'm offended i'm one of 300 people in the audience therefore I think this comedian should never perform at this comedy club again, right? And and so if you're smaller and you're easier to crush, that's who they go after.
0: You know, when when I hear these things, um, how are you supposed to be funny when you're not? You're all you're doing is trying to not offend anybody uh, in a group, and you don't even know what these people's background
1: is like. So what the hell are they supposed to do then? I don't do stand-up as much anymore as we do our live raw shows. And our attitude on raw is we don't care if people are offended. That's the point. It's called trigonometry raw. If you come to a show called trigonometry raw and you get triggered, that is your fault, my friend. You know what I mean? But from from a perspective of other people, uh, I, I remember I used to my stand-up material used to be very political. I used to talk about culture and political issues all the time. And, and that is quite difficult to do because fewer people pay attention to politics. So you have to be, you have to really work hard at it. And I prided myself on making ordinary people laugh by talking about political issues. That was always interesting to me. And one day I was performing at a very good comedy club in London and I came off stage and, and another comedian said, man, like that was great, really enjoyed that. And he's a very good comedian, very funny, right? And he said, oh man, I wish I could do that. And I went, what? Well, do what? You, you're a great comic, like what? And he went, I wish I could talk about politics. And I was like, well, you're a very good joke writer. Why don't you just research the, the, what's going on and then do some jokes about it? And he was like, no, 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 I couldn't do that. And I was like, why not? And he went, well, I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I'm a straight white guy. I just get crushed. <laughs> wow. And I was like, and so do you see what I'm getting at now with wokeness is it's created this idea that some people are literally better than others. Some people are more entitled than others to do certain things. And some people are worse than others and they're not entitled to do certain things, right? Which to me is the exact opposite of comedy. Like the, op- the point of comedy is to bring people together. You know, that's why you have all these jokes, a Korean guy and a Russian guy and an American guy walk into yeah, a bar yeah. and something funny happens. And we joke about the fact that there is elements of Korean culture that make it different to Chinese culture, that make it different to Russian culture and to Indian culture. And that is, to me, the whole point of of comedy and of humor. And I remember I learned this because this was all a shock to me, you know. When I was doing the stand-up circuit, I played by all these rules. I'd never make jokes about certain groups. I'd never make jokes that reference those groups. I stayed away from it because that was the environment that I was in. And then I did my own show and I toured it around the country and I'd make jokes about, you know, Russians and Ukrainians and Americans and British people. That was a lot of the jokes that I'd do. And I'd get people coming up to me like, and, and this guy came up to me and said, I'm from, I'm from Middle East, why don't you do Arab jokes? And I thought, and because I like, well, I'd get killed, mate. And he was like, no, no, you must do Arab jokes. Right. And, and so I realized this, that this idea that I had indoctrinated into me by the comedy industry was just bullshit. And ordinary people around the world want jokes. They want to be included in it. As long as you're not, you're not going after people to make them, you know, humiliate them and, and, and you know, offend them on purpose and there's no humour in it at all. But, you know, when we read an article about something happening in Italy and there's a quote from an Italian person, we are gonna do an Italian accent like this, huh? And if we do a Chinese story and someone is saying something Chinese, we'll do a Chinese accent. Isn't that not being racist? Because to me, being racist is when you treat people differently. Right. Exactly. And it yep. makes me laugh because I think think about China. China is a huge. Country with a tremendous amount of power. Right. You're telling me that these people are oppressed, that I can't do their accent or can't do jokes. billion or whatever of them. They are the second most powerful country in the world, arguably. And they are this victim? What are you talking about? This whole thing doesn't make any sense. But in the woke worldview they just think ethnic minorities need to be, you know, patted on their little heads and treated as if they're, they're poor little vulnerable people. And that's never been my, uh, my way of thinking at all because I grew up around people who were from different backgrounds and I never saw them as any different to me. We would have all sorts of very offensive jokes with each other. I can't even repeat the sort of jokes they'd make about me and the sort of jokes I'd make about them. And that was friendship to me, especially between guys, right? That's, that's what yeah, we yeah. do. So I just never had this crazy idea and it was only ironically when I started doing stand up comedy that I had all these rules about what you can and can't joke about and to me that's just not the way that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be man is this phenomenon like a cultural phenomenon only happening
0: in the West, and by by the West, I mean mainly in the UK, America, maybe Australia, Canada. Is is it sort of restricted to those regions of the world, or do you see this woke culture spilling over to different cultures as well?
1: You know what? Uh, you're probably much better placed to answer that question. I don't know if it's going on in in, in Asian countries and 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 elsewhere. Uh, to me, this is a particular problem of the Anglosphere. I think it spreads with the English language more than anything else. And it's crazy because it's like a mind virus. And the example I always give, you know, when we were on Joe Rogan, we talked about this. During the Black Lives Matter protests in America, we had a situation. Uh, they, they obviously had this thing called hands up, don't shoot. This was what they would chant in America because of the Michael Brown killing in America, where supposedly that's what he said before he was killed by a police officer. By the way, it turns out that wasn't what happened, but the, the meme stuck. And so during BLM in 2020, in London, we had protesters getting on their knees in front of police officers going, hands up, don't shoot. But here's the problem. British police officers don't carry guns. They can't shoot. Right. So this is just a cultural meme that we've imported from America into Britain that makes no sense in our context. The year that they were protesting about this, two people had been killed by the British police who were ethnic minorities. Right. One of them was a terrorist who was stabbing people on, Lo- on London Bridge in the heart of London. And he got shot by the police. Are we saying that's racist? I'm pretty down with the police shooting terrorists. Like I've got absolutely no problem with that. I don't care what their skin color is. Please shoot them because I don't want them stabbing people, right? So we've just imported this cultural meme into our country without thinking even for one second, whether it make, makes any sense whatsoever for our culture. And so it's kind of like a mind virus and people have called it a mind virus because we just import these ideas that sound good because it feels good to be like, I'm on the side of the oppressed. I'm on the side of the minorities. I'm on the side of the victims. So, you know, I'll put a black square on my Instagram in solidarity with something I don't understand. And that's really my issue with it. Like. We're importing these ideologies that are completely alien to our culture. And it's crazy. And so my only hope is you guys in Asia and elsewhere around the world don't, don't take this stuff on board. And the reason, by the way, that I'm so adamant that we in the West should reject them as well is I'm aware that people in Russia and people in China aren't sitting around, you know, debating what a woman is as we spend increasingly more time in the West. Right. they're getting ready to, to, you know, to strengthen their countries, to be more assertive in the world, to defend their national interest, to advance their interest around the world. And I think if we in the West are going to survive and endure, that's the sort of thing we should be focusing on too. I, I know you just mentioned it in passing, but uh, you just said
0: they're spending this crazy amount of time discussing what is a woman.
1: What, why, why is that controversial exactly? I wish I had a good answer to that question, but basically... Uh, this victimhood ideology that you and I talked about, you know, these people are oppressed, those people are oppressed, everybody's oppressed differently depending on how many categories they take. So if you're a woman and an ethnic minority, you're more oppressed. Well, in the pursuit of more and more oppression, they discover that there's this very small minority of people who are called transgender people. And these are people whose perception of who they are does not match the biology of who they are. So they are born male, but they, for some reason, feel like a woman or they were born female, but inside they feel that they're male, right? There's a very, very small percentage of these people in the country. As part of this movement to sort of treat oppressed communities with, with kid gloves, to, to give them as much support as they can, these poor trans people have been pushed into this place where, look, it's no longer enough that we stick to the very liberal Western idea that I was talking about earlier, which is, As long as you're not hurting anyone else, do whatever you want. If you want to dress in a dress and call yourself Mary, it's not what I would do, right? But as long as you're not hurting anybody, you're allowed to do that. However, in the pursuit of this endless kind of let's help these poor oppressed people, what they've started to do is push these people's quote-unquote rights onto everybody else. And it's no longer enough that I tolerate the fact or I accept the fact or even just celebrate the fact that you can dress and you know, call yourself whatever you want. Now, I have to say, you know what? You were born male. You choose to wear a dress, but you still have a male anatomy. You still have a penis. You're still biologically a man. So we cannot put you in a prison with women. We cannot allow you to go into a, male, a female dressing room or uh, a female changing room in a gym, right? Because biologically, you're still male. Sorry, I can tolerate and accept you the way you want to be, but I cannot accept that you actually are male in certain areas where that is going to harm other people, other people in this case being women. But the mantra from these woke people is trans people are what they say they are. So if I, a man, want to click my fingers and say, abracadabra, I'm called Mary, you now have to pretend that I am Mary. I physically am Mary. So if I say, I am a woman, it's not enough that you let me wear a dress and wear makeup. You have to now pretend that I am a woman. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Are, are
0: you saying that because somebody says that, oh, like, I'm a woman, Therefore, put me in a female prison. We've had cases of
1: this happening. There are people who have been put in prison who are rapists. They are male rapists who claim to be trans. Right, you're talking about an actual case,
0: like in
1: real life. Yes. Uh, So which
0: which which, which country are we talking about? UK
1: and America. I couldn't give you the names of the people in America, but it's happened. Not only were they put in a prison with women, they raped more women in prison. Right. But this is what happens when ideology just captures people's brains and they don't understand. And the look on your face is perfect for our conversation, because this is exactly the look on 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 the faces of my family back in Russia. Back in Ukraine, in Armenia, when I tell them this, and my family are very liberal people, right? But they don't get this craziness because they are trying to push this unreality onto everybody. And the consequences of that are it has a real impact on women in that situation. So Karen White in the UK, you can look up that case. We just had a case in Scotland where this guy with like fucking tattoos on his face, I mean, the least feminine person you've ever met, a rapist. Claimed that he was a woman and was put in a women's prison for several days before there was a big outcry and they were moved. Uh, so,
0: so first of all, uh, I don't know. if am you loving know my your face for all of this. This is so brilliant. yeah. So uh, I used to be actually a lawyer. So it's very hard for me to imagine, uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody like the going through the legal system, go through a judge, and they would decide to put this guy in female prison, so, which means that they did that, right?
1: So how can you do that under, under a proper legal system? Well, this is where we come back to the point that I made about the woke people is, they are a minority, but because they're so vocal, they get to set the agenda in terms of the way we have cultural conversations. And that also feeds into the media, it feeds into politics, it feeds into the law. So we now have a situation where, If you say that you're a woman and you live as a woman for a certain period of time, the government will give you what's called a gender recognition certificate that says that for the purposes of the law, you're allowed to call yourself by you're you're basically whatever you say you are. Right. And you, you effectively under the law, become the thing that you claim to be.
0: Yeah. Uh, I know, I know that's what you're saying. Um,
1: it's, it's insane. Kinda... Judiciary's job is to enforce the laws that politicians pass. And okay. we have laws right, that All have right. been passed by politicians on this issue. And there are very famous people who've made very... They speak much more in, in more nuanced terms than I do about this issue. Um, J.K. Rowling, for example, the author of the Harry Potter books. Uh, and uh, former athletes like Martina Navratilova, who, who talks about the fact, that a tennis superstar. There are people who who've, who were used to be male, who say they're a woman, who now compete in women's sports. There is a New Zealand weightlifter whose name now escapes me, who competed in the weightlifting for New Zealand internationally. Who's, who's just a guy? He's just a guy. There was a a, a guy uh, who changed his name to Leah Thomas in America, who competed in swimming and beat all the records. So did
0: this person, whether it's he or she, did that person have like a sex change or something? Or No. No. I, I know that in countries like Thailand, for example, we have yep. a lot of what is so-called ladyboys, and they want to be women. And so right. they go through all these operational procedures and... Uh, but even,
1: I don't think they, they themselves would refer to themselves as, Oh, I, I'm, I'm a woman. Right. Well, cause they clearly have sense. So in this case, uh, I think, over, a very significant portion of the people who say they are trans don't have any sex change. Leah Thomas did not, Leah Thomas still had a penis and swam with this penis against women, be all their records won all the medals, screwed girls and women out of an opportunity to compete fairly. And this has happened, there are many, just look, I know you don't believe me and I am so grateful that you don't because it shows me there's still some sane people out there in the world, right? I- I'm just hoping that there's the, uh, magically another side of the story that we're not aware of or I'm not aware of that all of a sudden this makes sense. But... Which is why I invite you and all your audience to Google it transgender swimmer transgender weightlifter look it all up man uh, transgender rapists in prison this is happening in the West and that's because these woke people have taken the idea of people being oppressed to such a crazy extent that they don't un- they don't un- they, like they don't understand reality anymore because they're so stuck in ideology now these are uh, the so-called
0: ideologies is Sounds to me like it's grounded in compassion because you want to watch out for all these people's like minorities' rights,
1: and you want to care for them. That's exactly right. They what what they've done is they've weaponized empathy and compassion uh, to the point where there's two dimensions to this. One of them is we so want to care about these people that we're you know in order to make someone feel comfortable, we'll lie, we'll pretend the truth isn't the truth. It's much better to put some trans people in a prison with people of the wrong sex than to tell them, you know what, we respect your right to dress how you want and we respect your right to call yourself a woman, but you're not actually a woman, right? We'd rather put you, we'd rather change reality than tell you the truth, number one. And the second thing is they've weaponized, ah, the rest of us, our our, our empathy against us because they go, look, you care about people being, you know, victimized and oppressed and whatever, and I say, yes, I do. Well, in that case, you have to accept all these things that aren't true. And I'm like, well, I have empathy, but doesn't mean I'm prepared to lie to make you feel better. And that is the core of the issue that we're talking about, where the part of this ideology is essentially denying the existence of truth. And that's why I don't know if this term has reached you guys, but increasingly in the West, people now don't talk about their truth. They say, well, my truth is this, right? My lived experience. Is this?
0: Yeah, but that's your, that's your experience, that's your view, that's your opinion.
1: Right. Well, look, man, I, I hope you actually stop doing what you're doing in Asia and come over here and join me so we can explain it to people together because you get it uh, in a way that most people don't seem to get. Um, I'm trying to understand this. I thought that
0: uh, women were also one of those protected minority groups. In other words, women also have rights. So, Bingo. Oh,
1: mate, you, I, I love it. You, do you know what? Competing rights against each other. You're then. so smart. You've worked out the core of it straight away. And this is where we come back to what I talked about earlier, which is intersectionality. Remember how I said that different people are oppressed to different levels, depending on how many categories they have and what category they belong to. Right. So what if they're both oppressed? Right. Well, the thing is, now you have to work out who's more oppressed. And women are oppressed compared to men. Because men are, you know, men are the oppressors, especially if they're white, especially if they're straight, right? Women are oppressed compared to men. Black women are oppressed compared to white women. But trans people, they are, quote unquote, the most vulnerable people, and therefore their rights trump the rights of everybody else. And that's where this insanity comes in into its fundamental conflict because you start to see what I've been saying throughout this whole time, which is once you've created the ideology that some people are more deserving than others, right? Once you've moved away from the idea that you and I are human beings who have equal dignity and equal value by virtue of the fact that we're human beings, you're not Asian And I'm not Jewish and Russian and British and whatever. We're just two people who have equal value under the law. Once you move away from that, then you start to have a pecking order where some people's rights trump the rights of other people. And so for the sake of this ideology, for the sake of protecting poor, vulnerable trans people, it's okay to throw women under the bus. It's okay for girls to have to compete with boys, in competition because at least then we're being compassionate to the poor trans people. In that case, what does
0: happen to the women if they speak up and let's say those,
1: uh, they get girls in the
0: swimming team and then just say, Hey, I don't think this is kind of fair.
1: I don't want to compete with this, this person. What happens to them? Look at what happens to JK Rowling, JK Rowling. She was always on these people's side. She was always compassion, tolerance, empathy, gave millions of pounds to charities, supported all of these causes. The moment she said anything about trans, she instantly became racist, transphobic, hateful, bigoted. Uh, People hate her, people are burning her books, people are smashing up. We had a guy on our show who's a friend of ours, he runs a restaurant in London. Uh, He did a fundraiser for Ukrainians, for Ukrainian children, and J.K. Rowling came along to help them raise money, right? He had the window of his restaurant smashed and the TripAdvisor ratings on his restaurant page, like filled with one-star ratings because he, quote-unquote, associated with a transphobe. So
0: who, who's the transphobe?
1: He, the JK restaurant Rowling? owner and J.K. Yeah. Rowling. Huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love your face during all of this, man.
0: So I think, number one, we need to clearly establish that regardless of their sexual orientation, whether it be trans or or other, yeah, they do need to be protected and they deserve uh, equal opportunity. Right. right? Um, Equal opportunity in terms of they shouldn't be discriminated against. I think everybody's
1: sort of on the same page. So that's not what you're saying. No. This is where what you just said is very important because people will often try to present what a disagreement about some of the challenges to do with this issue as like you don't care about the rights of trans people. I'm saying the opposite what you just said. Everyone has the right to be treated as an equally valid, valuable individual. But when your rights come into conflict with other people's rights, that's when the conversation becomes more challenging. And that's where you cannot claim that the rights of some people are more valuable than the rights of other people because they're, quote-unquote, more oppressed than others. And that's where the problem with this whole ideology comes in. And what bothers me as well is, forget forget about the ideology itself. It's the tactics. You, you want to be woke. You're allowed to be woke. It's a free country. You are allowed to believe whatever you want, right? you're allowed to think that jk rowling is transphobic if you want you're allowed to think that i am a bigot if you want you have that right my issue is with the tactics what you're not allowed to do is to attack people. What you shouldn't be doing is calling people names that aren't true, trying to get them fired from their job, trying to get people you know, not, not to be allowed on television again because they said something that you personally disagree with. And that's the other thing that bothers me is the methods and the tactics that these people use are outrageous and, 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 a, and a big problem i just got one question in in regard to this uh so
0: where does asian people belong so for example mm. let's say if there were uh, were like this patently discriminatory uh laws against like chinese immigrants mm. right in the u.s and then they went through all this true oppression yep but then typically asians are sort of you know seen as a model minority and they're all doing pretty well so in that packing order like i mean Asians is still minority right so
1: yeah yeah but you're like the jews man you're too successful you're too successful to be oppressed you see like you mentioned the model minority so you don't rank high on the victimhood hierarchy because you're not victims because chinese japanese Korean-Americans who, 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 who either came to America or that descended from people who came to America, as you say, suffered a lot. I mean, the Japanese were interned in camps during World War II, right? They, they just worked freaking hard, right? They just worked super hard. They teach their kids to study hard and go to, to school and go to university and do well and, and out-earn the local population, actually, right?
0: Yet they're not considered oppressed?
1: Not enough. This, You're this- not oppressed enough. You're not oppressed enough, no. Okay,
0: because we actually interviewed a lot of North Korean defectors in the past. Mm -hmm. This whole dichotomy of uh, the oppressor versus the oppressed. Uh In the the communist society uh, where the landowner is the, the oppressor, so you one day, yep, he's the enemy, we kill this guy, we take his land, right? And then the oppressed will take over the land. And then they themselves become relatively more of an oppressor to even even more of a peasant people so they get killed
1: so it's, it's just like race to the bottom then right this conversation shows me why you've, you've been as successful with your youtube channel as you have because you're very smart and you've worked this out very quickly this is one of the reasons that people talk about the woke ideology as being neo-marxism because what you're talking about there is a communism is a form of marxism where that's where really the Marxist worldview says that there are some people who are oppressors and some people who are oppressed. The capitalists, the landowners, the factory owners, the capitalists, the bourgeois, they're oppressing the workers and the peasants. And what wokeness has done is it's a new form of Marxism that says, no, 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 no. The way you look at society is not the class way of looking at it, which is the richer the oppressors, the poor poorer the oppressed. No, 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 no. You look at it through the lens of race, ethnicity, gender, transgenderism, sexuality, and so on. And that's how you decide who is oppressed and who isn't. So it's just a new form of Marxism. That's what it is.
0: At the end of the day, when given your uh, Soviet Union background, mm. where you're not allowed to say anything, and you don't really have the freedom of speech, and then you come to the Western world where you think you have all these freedom, uh, but if you look at the results, increasingly so, we we it appears to me that you don't have that much of freedom to, to
1: do anything, really, even in the Western world. So, what, what does that lead to? I don't want to go too far. I think we should recognize that um, if, as we talked about earlier, if you have your own platform, if you have your own show, if you're not going to get banned off YouTube, which at points looked Possible during COVID and other times, but right now we're in a reasonably okay place. If that is the case, you can say what you think. JK Rowling can say what she thinks to millions of people, if she wants. The issue is, as we talked about earlier, the tactics. People want to shut her down. People send her rape and death threats all the time because she takes this view of the trans issue. Uh, that's part of the issue, and the other part of the issue is government is legislating all the time to restrict what we can and can't say online. Uh, introducing, you know, cr- it's it's a crime to say something. You know, in Scotland, which is part of the uh, part of the UK, they tried to introduce a bill which said that if you said something hateful inside your own home, you could be prosecuted for that. Uh, there is a guy on YouTube called Count Dankula who did a comedy sketch, and uh, you know, it, it was. Quite edgy. He trained his dog to do a Hitler salute. I don't know if you're familiar with this case. Um, it's quite funny, if, to, if, if you ask me, um, because the the way he did it, right? He wasn't celebrating Nazis. He was, he was making fun of it. Uh, and he actually got arrested and prosecuted in Scotland, and he's officially a hate criminal for just doing a joke, for doing a prank on his girlfriend that he recorded. So that's where you start to get a lot of, into trouble. But you're right. I mean, the direction of travel isn't healthy. And so that's why, you know, me and m- many other people, we're speaking up to try and raise awareness of the fact that as we talked about a lot a lot earlier in the conversation, freedom is important. Yes, it has trade-off. It means idiots are going to say stupid things and make offensive jokes. But that's better than the opposite of that.
0: I could imagine people like, oh, you, you have this, uh, this like a right, you know, wing person on and and you shouldn't platform me i could already imagine people just saying that now right now yeah
1: well i'm not even right wing so you need to get someone actually right wing if you want to get really cancelled uh i I, people like to people like to smear me as right wing because it it means they don't have to challenge what i'm saying on the facts of it Um, i i am neither left wing nor right wing i i I don't like wings generally. I try to think for myself about the individual issues, as I think you do as well. All because of this tribalism that you mm. people just have this desire to categorize you, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, oh, you must be a right winger. So, do you do you get accused of that a lot?
1: Uh, sometimes I I'll be honest with you. People accuse me of all sorts of things all the time. There is there's a bunch of people who say. Uh, I'm not right-wing and that's a problem because I should be right-wing. There's a bunch of people who say I'm right-wing and that's a problem because I shouldn't be right-wing. There are other people who think that uh, I'm, 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 uh, they make up all sorts of crazy shit about how I am, you know, I'm part of the government propaganda machine. Like the internet is full of crazy people who haven't taken their medication and, and, you know, you can't take it too seriously.
0: Well, sounds like we're getting very similar uh, accusations, especially yeah. when it comes to the government propaganda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, exactly. CCP Shield right here. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I get accused of both on the same day. There are people who go, oh, you know, trigonometry, they just controlled opposition. And then at the same breath, I get people who say we're racist and bigoted and whatever. And the truth of it is, man, it's like Joe Rogan says you got to just not read the comments. You got to just move on and do your thing. The success of your show, the success of our shows, the, the sensible majority of people are out there. They want to hear honest conversations with fascinating people, which is our slogan here. They want to have, uh, you know, interesting dialogue. They're not all crazy. They don't all, you know, if you think about how many people, you know, who actually will leave angry YouTube comments on things that they watch, you probably don't know anyone like that. So, um, you know i we we often find that sometimes we put a video out and there's a, a crap ton of angry comments and then we look at the like to dislike ratio and almost everyone who who like who watched the video liked it uh, people enjoy it uh but the angry people are the angry people and angry people do what angry people do so uh you can't let that affect you You know uh i, I understand that particularly with as you get bigger and your your, your channel's you know huge you're gonna get it from both sides, but I just think for people like us, we just gotta recognize that, um, you know, once you put yourself out there, you stick your head above the parapet, people are gonna go after you, and that comes with the territory, you know? It comes with the territory.
0: Like basically, you know, this is a mission that we've been, I mean, I'm probably gonna be doing for the rest of my life, continue to live this mission of trying to bring people's voices and cultures together uh, through delivering authentic insights from Asia to the world because there's absolutely zero nuance If you just see what's how they report issues uh, in the mainstream media mm-hmm. and that's something that I really wanted to help You know try to transform uh, Even when I was law- a lawyer It's the more their people are willing to just sit down for a conversation and uh, engage the populace. I think it's a good thing.
1: I couldn't agree more. It's a great mission, man. And I I hope you keep it up and we're going to keep doing the same over here.
0: Well, let's uh, leave it there then. Uh, Constantine, thank you so much for coming on our show. And uh, yeah, hope to uh,
1: have a chat with you soon. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Great to chat.